Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 5, verse 1 through 21. It says this, it says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire. It did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your servant or daughter, nor your male or female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is truly good to be with you in town. My name is Josh. I am nothing really here but a member, so I don't really know why Brian lets me get up here, but he does, and I'm grateful because it makes me very happy to preach and work through God's Word with you. Um, If you woke up this morning and your first thought was, you know what would really get me jacked up today? Deuteronomy 5, then you're in luck, because we're just going to have a great time getting through um, at least one verse of this book. And this is even kind of the backup to the Ten Commandments because it happens first in Exodus 20, so we kind of picked the the JV passage. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 5 today, next week, and possibly even the week after. So what I would like to do for us today is set a little context for the book of Deuteronomy as a whole talk about the Ten Commandments just briefly, and then move into the commandment we're looking at today, the Ninth Commandment. I had to make sure I was getting the number right several times throughout the week. I won't lie to you. But it is the Ninth, I promise. Even though I changed the 
number in my sermon to six because I thought it was six and then to eight and then actually ended up at nine. But it is the ninth. We'll look at that. And then what I want to do, where I want to kind of land this thing is look at what does it mean to be people who are devoted to the truth and devoted to our neighbors and what kind of church might that look like? That's where we're going to kind of land, so please keep that in your mind. So let's start by looking at Deuteronomy. We're going to get right into it. We have a lot of work to do, so hopefully we'll have a good time together. Um, the book of Deuteronomy might not land on anyone's you know, list of favorite books or favorite passages from the Bible. However, uh, Deuteronomy is considered by many to be the linchpin of the Old Testament. Um, many scholars consider it one of the most important Old Testament books. And you might not know this, but Deuteronomy is actually one of the four books in the Old Testament quoted most in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's being tempted by Satan in the desert, quotes Deuteronomy repeatedly. Uh, we see it quoted by uh, the apostles in Acts, the gospel writers, and Paul as well, time and time again. It's considered the linchpin because it serves two purposes. It looks back in history, back in history, at what has happened, and it looks forward. What will it look like to be the people of God in this promised land? What will it look like for God's law to rule the day? Even more than that, it's a constitution for Israel, in a sense. It's this document that establishes them, constitutes them, and tells them, this is what you will be for their budding theocracy. In addition, it's uh, Moses' last will and testament. Deuteronomy, the place in history that occupies, it's actually comes after the first four books that we see in the Torah, even though it covers a lot of the same material. This is after Israel has gone through the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt, gone through the wilderness, and now here they're at the precipice of the promised land, and Moses, he's at the end of his life, and he preaches. The book of Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons from Moses to the people, his last will and testament. And so if you think about what you would want to say at the end of your days, having lived, hopefully, a long and fruitful life, what is it? If you had 30 chapters, what would it be that you would want to leave behind? For Moses, this is it. His role as Israel's paradigm prophet, the first of all the prophets to come, the first one that was ushered into God's presence and charged with speaking to the people the very word of God, what would he say? What would you say? But there's more to Deuteronomy. There's more to Deuteronomy 5 and our commandment today than just law. It's, it's pretty interesting, actually. In the ancient Near East, there were treaties that would be made between um, greater rulers and lesser rulers. Um, they're on display at Museums, archaeologists have discovered a number of these. You can actually go and read them. And, and some of them would be called suzerain vassal treaties. Now stick with me here. There's a striking, striking resemblance between Deuteronomy and some of these treaties. You would have a, a, they would normally follow a similar structure. So it would go something like this. You would have a preamble where it would say, you know, the word of Sennacherib to some other loser. Um, and then there would be a historical prologue, something like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then there would be a series of stipulations or rules or expectations. This is what it will look like to be 
in this treaty between you and me. This is how things are going to go. Then there would be a series of sanctions, or in other words, blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. If this thing gets off the rails and goes bad, then what are we going to do about it? There would be ratification and then a succession arrangement. If, if one of us dies, do we keep going down this road or does the whole thing dissolve and fall apart? If you read through Deuteronomy, there's actually such an incredible striking resemblance to these treaties. Now, Why does that matter? It matters because in the same way that, that two leaders would bind themselves to one another in order for the prosperity of their respective kingdoms, so God is binding himself and binding the people to himself in a way just like the kings of old. However, there's two things missing that really, really matter because in things like this, it's not just what's there, it's also what's not there. So what's missing in Deuteronomy that would often be in these other treaties? Well, two things. One of the things is that in these ancient treaties, often um, it was the, the result of conquest. So one leader crushes another one, and then whoever's left alive, he unites them, binds them to himself. But that's not what we see here at all. That's not what God is like to Israel. He doesn't crush them, he crushes their enemies. He crushed Egypt and led them out. He's their liberator and their redeemer and their savior, and he's binding himself to them not out of servitude, but out of love and pursuit and mercy. Another thing that's missing is that often uh, the two parties, they would call their, their pagan gods. I'll call my gods, you call your gods as witnesses. Here's your copy, my copy, I'll put mine in my temple. You put yours in your temple, and we'll call it a deal. But that's not what happens. God doesn't call Israel's idols. He calls himself, and he calls heaven and earth be the witnesses. And I think that is kind of scary because it's, I would almost rather have a a stone statue making sure that I kept up my end of the deal, but heaven and earth, air, water, the stuff that courses through my body, that's the witness that's making sure I keep up my end of the deal. That's much worse, but that's who God calls as a witness. This is not just an opportunity to nerd out on some interesting you know, facts. It matters because this is the context in which the Ten Commandments exist. This is how God gives them. He gives them not just as mere legislation, which would be fine because it comes from him, but he gives it in the context of a covenant arrangement, a treaty arrangement between a king and his people. This is the treaty of the great king who loves his people. And I think it's the worst sort of, of biblicism or this kind of thin, shallow, literal reading where we rip the commandments out of their context and then we just kind of slap each other around with them as if they were weapons meant to gain the upper hand with each other. But it's so much more than that. It's not just Aesop's fables where we're looking for the moral of the story. It's not just the boy who cried wolf where we're all going to get eaten if we tell too many lies. It's history. Not just the most palatable of ancient myths and epics. This isn't a despotic deity ripping apart a lesser God to create the world. This is the story of the Redeemer God, Yahweh, pursuing his people to whatever end in order to make them his own. The commandments, these ten words, 
They're the part for the whole of God's entire relationship with Israel. So much more than legislation merely. He's saying to Israel, you, know what it, you want to know what it looks like to follow me and love me? This is it right here. This is your life. And think about the, the very, very first verse of the psalm. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In effect, God is saying, do this and live. Now choose life. As I said earlier, there's a a structure to this beautiful, incredible linchpin of a book. If we read on up through chapter 28, actually, and you could turn that right now and read it for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, It's a chapter of blessings and curses, and there's blessings and curses attached to their obedience or disobedience. They're all related to the land, God's promised land. A lot of things about fruit and cattle and, and, and babies. Um, your enemies will be defeated before you, God says. He'll establish you as a people. But if you will not obey, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, fruit of your land, and fruit of your cattle. From heaven, dust shall come down until you, on you until you are destroyed. That's just some of the highlights. It's a strong echo of the same curses that God gave to Adam when he, was, when he and Eve were kicked out of the garden. That he would return to dust. But this time, because sin has spiraled, because the wickedness of man has increased, and this tide of darkness is growing, it's not just that you will return to dust, but instead of rain, it will be dirt raining down on you on the day of your disobedience. Israel, they go on to believe a lie. Which brings us to the ninth commandment. Um, But before that, I wanted to tell you a short story. Um, I went to a a Christian elementary school and uh, junior high after being homeschooled for a while. um, So I got plenty of that. Um, Don't knock it until you try it if you've never... Try it. Um, or go ahead and knock it. I don't really care. Um, we had a test on the Ten Commandments. I think it was in eighth grade, so I probably would have been about 13. Plenty of time to get it figured out by then. And I remember getting to the Third Commandment, which is not taking the name of God in vain. And after writing out the first two, which I think I did, well, I remember I got a B- minus on the test, which I was kind of bummed about. But got to the Third Commandment, and I just wrote, Don't cuss. And then moved on to the fourth one. And then I wrote, go to church on Sunday. And then I moved on to the fifth one. And I don't remember what I put for the rest. But that's always stuck with me. Don't cuss. I think I kind of missed the point. But when I was that age, that was the, the worst possible thing that could come out of my mouth. Because I would never even think to, to say anything with... Uh, you know, the weight of taking God's name in vain around my parents or my sisters because they would tell on me because they were younger and that was their job. Seemingly in my home was to take me down. I just thought, well, the worst possible thing I can do is cuss. So I'm, it's obviously that's what it's about. Don't cuss. And, and it seems that I missed the point. And, and perhaps when we reduce 
uh, this commandment to just the, the word for word, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, whatever that means, which we'll try and get into here, or even just don't tell lies, maybe, and, and we could talk about this because I could be wrong, but just maybe there's a little bit more to it than just avoiding a mistruth or a little bit of deceit. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time here looking more specifically at the Ninth Commandment since that is, after all, our text and the name of the sermon, What's So Great About the Ninth Commandment? Um, the, the text basically says this, You shall not testify against your neighbor. I think it's around verse 20 or 21 if you want to check it out. Um, or I could be off on that. A little before 21. You shall not testify against your neighbor as a deceitful, uh, you could also say fraudulent or false witness. Um, Freighted with legal, legal weight here, if you read on in Deuteronomy, there's an example given about what this kind of would look like. And the example there is to not carry around two weights that are weighted differently in your pocket. So if there was a situation, which I don't run into on a regular basis, maybe you do, where you have to, to weigh something with someone else, um, you need to have weights that are the same. So you can be fair and equitable and be a just, upright person towards your neighbor and not cheat them out of Maybe something they owe you or what you owe them. And as the saying goes, weigh the scales in your favor. You need to have weights that are the same, that are equal. Um, It actually says that it's an abomination to the Lord to carry around weights that are of different weights. Why is that? Because it's getting to this undergirding principle of dishonesty and selfishness. But there's something else here that I think is is so crucial that we often miss because just as I reduced the third commandment to not using profanity, often we reduce this one simply to not lying. But what does it actually say, the last two words, your neighbor shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? These commandments far from the charge of being just another chapter in a backwards, oppressive, patriarchal religion, actually are looking out for the weak, for your neighbor. And doesn't that really get at what we think about human dignity and what we think about other people and what they're actually worth, that they might be worth a fair shake? I doubt any of us are carrying around misshapen weights in our pockets, but the principle, rather, really drives us to think about others, to think about our neighbor, to consider whether they deserve, to use another expression, their day in court. Is your neighbor worth the truth? Let's put it this way. What about the people who have really hurt you? What about the people who have have lied to you? Can you remember the last time that that someone, and maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was this week, that someone told a lie and it really got under your skin because it actually tarnished your reputation? That's the way that deceit works when it gets inside of us. It kind of boils inside of us. Why? Because we, we love our reputation. What about people that you've hurt with lies? If, we, if we're honest, we've all been on both sides of that coin. We've been hurt by deceit and we've deceived others. We so easily pervert the truth. 
But the flip side of the commandment is where it really starts to get to our hearts. The letter kind of pricks our conscience. Don't bear false witness. Don't be, don't be a false witness. You could think of it that way. If we want to say don't lie, then that's fine. Just don't lie. And that's, that's fine because we know that that's wrong. And so maybe that pricks our conscience a little bit. Don't deceive people. But the spirit of the law, that's what really buries us. And that's the flip side that each of these commandments have. Maybe some of us can say, um, I, I certainly can't, but maybe some of us can say that we've done a pretty good job of not telling lies. That when it comes to other people, we've been fairly honest. We've, we've given them a fair opportunity to prove themselves and be who they are. That we've looked out for the best for our friends, our families, and our coworkers. Maybe some of us can say that. That we have not told lies. But can you say that in all you do, you've been honest? Honesty is not merely not telling lies. These are not the same thing. I think we can agree about that. There's a big gap between just not telling a lie and actually pursuing honesty and integrity in all that we do with ourselves and with other people. Each one of these commandments that has a positive corollary that's rooted in the ethic that undergirds the commandment itself. I'll say that again. It has a positive corollary that's rooted in the ethic that undergirds the commandment. What in the world does that mean? The letter of the law says, no other gods but me. Well, what's the flip side? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The letter of the law says, don't murder. What's the flip side? Not only don't murder, but promote life. Love life. Encourage life. Cultivate life, especially for those who can't protect themselves. The letter of the law says, don't steal. What's the real point? Give away everything that you have, especially to those who need it. The letter says, don't covet a thousand things that your neighbor has. What's the flip side? You just want your neighbor to have all the best stuff. It says, don't lie. What about instead of not lying? We work to cultivate a voracious, compelling, and winsome devotion to the truth, not only in our own lives, but also for our neighbors. We might be able to finesse the precise language of these commandments so that they fit our standards that we've set for ourselves. But if we're honest, if we get to the spirit that undergirds the commandments, it can be rather crushing. At least, it is for me. That's what buries us. I'll put it this way. If you were to put a lie detector on me, and you knew the right questions to ask, that's, I'm done. I'm devastated. If I could put a lie detector on you, and I knew the right questions to ask, we might as well just get up and walk out the door right now, because I don't think, <laughs> I don't want to go down that road with you. Um, I don't know you that well. And even if I did, then I still wouldn't really want to. The message of free pardon in Christ and union with him would be water to my malnourished and dehydrated soul because it's only in Christ, it's only because of our union with him that we can actually let our guard down and be willing to answer those questions that we don't want anyone to ask. Our allergy to the truth becomes so much more easier to handle when we look to Christ because if we have his approval, then say what you want about me. 
but it can't crush me. It might bend me, but it won't crush me. Even though we scratch, claw, and cheat, and steal, and fight, just as long as we keep the appearance of integrity, we think we'll be fine, but we know we won't. Um, I don't know about you, have you ever wanted to be so badly to be honest about something that's the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think of before you fall asleep? You know what the gospel does? It levels the playing field. It says that every one of you, including me, we are liars. We're liars. And the gospel is good news for liars. Because it levels the playing field. It says we all equally fall short of God's holiness. And you know what it says? For the first time, you can actually be honest. You can stop the charade. You can let your guard down. You can let the facade crumble and let someone see you for who you really are. For lack of a better buzzword, you can be authentic. You don't need my approval, and you don't need anyone else's. You can actually be yourself. And trust that, yeah, maybe there are some things that God needs to go to work on, but you can actually let someone in and see those things and work on them together. And it's only in the gospel. No one else offers that. No one else says, come in and be weak and be real and be yourself. And there's a way forward. There's someone who has accepted you so much. There's someone who has loved you so deeply and so profoundly who knows everything and yet accepts you. So where can we go to find the truth? Or more accurately, to whom can we go? We talked about covenant king. We talked about being covenant servants. I want to talk about the covenant son. Look at what Jesus said before Pilate in John 18. It says this. You can turn there, John 18, a few verses. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And one of my favorites, which is, is so pertinent to understanding this passage and understanding Deuteronomy and where it's leading in the rest of history, John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And this is so important, so please listen John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law is what crushes us. If the gospel is what crushes you, you haven't understood the gospel. The gospel does not say, do this and live. The gospel says, it has all been done for you. And because it's been done for you, the one who lives forevermore lives inside of you now, and he is for you, and he has left an advocate to be your helper. Jesus, he makes this free offer to all of us liars who have either gotten caught in our webs or have so far skated by. He does this in his person and work because he came as the second Adam and did all that the first Adam failed to do. Because in him, as the prophet says, was, no, was found no deceit. There was no guile in his mouth, no waywardness. No falsehood. He alone can make atonement for our sin. 
And that's the truth this morning. That's the good news. That the one in whom there was found no deceit has gone to the cross and was raised again for deceitful people like us. That though we are liars, the faithful witness, as John calls him, has not abandoned us. In fact, has given you himself. But what else does he do? We rightly focus on Jesus' work to forgive our sin, but what else does he do? He goes to war against the powers of darkness. He goes to war against the power of deceit. He goes to war against the one in him. There was no truth. Think about this in John 8. When Jesus is talking to Jews, the descendants of Moses who were seeking to kill him, says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, namely to kill me, Jesus. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's John 8. Jesus in a great paradox as the Prince of Peace, the way, the truth, and the life, goes to war against the Prince of Darkness and the Father of Lies and allows himself to be conquered. But what does that do for the first time since creation? He begins to reverse the tide of darkness that has been creeping and sweeping over all of creation since Adam fell. And he does that first by going to war against the Father of Lies. And he does that for us. So what? The title of this sermon is What's So Great About the Ninth Commandment? What's so great about the Ninth Commandment? Uh, not much. Unless we come to grips with the holiness of God and the fact that this commandment, commandments always reflect the character of the lawgiver. Unless we come to grips with His holiness and our great need for His presence in our lives. I don't need the Bible to know that lying is bad. We all have consciences. They're hardwired into us. I don't need the Bible to know that. But what's so great about the Ninth Commandment is that it drives us to our knees looking for a solution. What's so great about the Ninth Commandment? All the commandments, you know what I love about the Ten Commandments? That they presuppose failure. You know what I love about the Ten Commandments? Is that they presuppose failure. God gives these commandments to a sinful people. Think about it. Uh, Deuteronomy says that when they're in the wilderness, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Forty years in the wilderness. Do you think it's possible, just possible, that at some point, at least one person broke at least one of these commandments along the way. Do you think there might have been uh, some shady dealings with some unweighted weights at some point? Someone was hiding one in the, the like hidden pocket of their tunic or something like that? That there might not have been some marital infidelity, there might not have been some lies, someone had an idol hiding? Of course, of course. 40 years, or even go back further than that. The, the Ten Commandments, they, they presuppose failure. He, he knows us. He knows full well that we're not capable 
of this. And that's why, that's why I love what it says in John 1, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. That the law, it cannot bring life. The law cannot raise the dead. So, so if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, you're right. I just need to be a more honest person. I just need to get better at telling the truth. That's really the problem. That's why things are going so bad for me. I'll tell you, you can start telling the truth and things might stay bad. They might not get that better, that much better. But at the end of your days, at least you can say that you lived a life that pursued God, that pursued his ways, that was pleasing to him. But the law cannot do that. It cannot give us the life we're looking for. Only Jesus and his grace can do that. And it's only when we come to our end, it's only when the law brings us to our knees, and it does what Paul says, that it becomes our schoolmaster or our teacher where it leads us to Christ. It shows, up all, shows all of our failure and our need for a Savior. And that is when we truly understand the Ninth Commandment. And in fact, if all we can say about the Ninth Commandment is that it tells us not to lie, we haven't actually preached it. If someone gets up here and talks about it and they say, you need to get it together, I know you're all liars, and they never actually get to Jesus and never get to the Gospel and the offer of free grace, they totally missed it. That's what the law does. It brings us to our knees. And we see what Jesus is doing to reverse this great tide of darkness. What's so great about the Ninth Commandment? It moves us to mission by compelling us to be fair and just for our neighbors in a world of deceit and lies. What does that mission look like in regards to the truth? Two things to finish, and we'll wrap up here. Um, I, I, I constantly struggle with what does it look like to be a person who cares about the truth, but also to be a, a person who is um, actually truly, in a meaningful way, concerned about other people. Um, it's, it's hard to be both of those things, and I don't know why that is, because it seems like they should go together. Um, I don't know if we want to go the way of, of Protestant liberalism, because so many of, of those churches and denominations who share our heritage are slowly dying, but I don't think we also want to go the way of, of rigid, harsh fundamentalism, where no one ever feels like they can speak up and be honest about what's going on. Um, but I think there is a way forward. In 1 Timothy 4, like I said, we will end here. Paul says this. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I love that word persist. Persist in this. Persevere in this. Endure in this. How can we cultivate this type of lifestyle and, and community? Two things. We, truth in life and truth in doctrine. How can we be the type of people who have a sense of what I call the urgent necessity of orthodoxy and an appreciation for the heritage that has come before us, yet be a people and place where the worst are the most welcome doctrine. We have creeds, confessions, catechisms, books, podcasts. You should use those things. There is a great store of wisdom that our fathers and mothers of the faith have passed on to us, and we have more resources available to us now than at any point in history. We should use those things. Some of your faith has been so eroded by um, 
the claims of cynicism that you don't know where to turn and your doubt has taken over. They're destroying you. Faith is not a blind leap. Christian faith, it's a trust that seeks understanding and it's okay to seek. And lastly, to create this community, life. Two words um, that I I think about often are uh, compelling and winsome. What does it look like to have a compelling and winsome life? It's hard to find people who are examples in this way, and I certainly am not, but a compelling and a winsome life is a great treasure. Uh, if any of us want to be of service to our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers, we must start by freely admitting our failures. Freely admitting our failures. Weakness is compelling. Weakness is compelling. It's interesting. It's intriguing. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Why is Jesus so interesting? Their, their, their life is a disaster. It's complete failure in every way. They don't make a lot of money. They don't have really anything that I want. But there's something interesting there. It's, it's intriguing. We are commodities meant to be poured out, boasting in our weakness and boasting in the strength of Christ so that the glory of Jesus might be magnified. That is truth worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that you don't come to us in a mountain smoking with thunder and fire and terror and law, but you come to us on a mountain filled with grace, a shining city on a hill, and you don't force us to climb up, but you come down to us, Lord, and the covenant of grace is so much better than the old way. Father, even though we wander in the wilderness, just like your people did. You sent your own Son to starve in the wilderness. And He persevered so He might feed us. He might nourish us and strengthen us and use His Spirit to fill us with hope and joy that can last forever. Father, here this morning we have so many needs. We have so many failures. Father, I I pray that we would find them met in you, satisfied in you, and that the joy of knowing you would be greater than any other temptation we face, that to be with you and your people is truly better. And Lord, as we come to your table, I ask that um, in that mysterious way you would be among us and that your spirit would satisfy us and that even this small meal, these crumbs, would be but a small taste of the feast you have prepared for us and the day when you bring, will you bring all creation to a great climax and you will sweep us up into your presence and we will feast with you, the spotless lamb forevermore. We thank you so much for this day and for your people. And I ask that your spirit would be at work among us even now. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.